0: Let's save the world first, then martinis on me. Sounds like a plan. Shaken, not stirred, please. Welcome back to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the Mac's original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and I'm the founder of Cherry Bomb Magazine and the Radio Cherry Bomb Podcast, where I report on some of the most interesting women in the world of food, including trailblazers just like Julia.
1: To say I'm intrigued is an understatement.
0: After each episode, I'm dishing with creatives from the show, as well as special guests to give us a little perspective and food for thought. Today, we're talking about the final episode of season two that went so fast. And I am so sad, but we have a great show for you. First up, it's Julia executive producers, Chris Kaiser and Daniel Goldfarb here together. What a treat. And I also sit down with, I can't believe this, Mother Joffrey. Mother is nothing short of an icon. She's an award-winning actor, best-selling cookbook author, and winner of the 2023 James Beard Lifetime Achievement Award. What is Mother's connection to Julia Child? Stay tuned. Friends, for the final time this season, I am sounding the spoiler alert. If you're listening to this before you watch the episode, just be warned, spoilers ahead. Here we go. Let's go put on a show that'll leave
2: them wanting more.
0: Episode 8 kicks off with Julia placating an old friend she's been avoiding, Frank Bludger from the FBI, played by Paul Guilfoyle. Frank is blackmailing Julia and threatening her crew at WGBH. Julia and Paul rally the troops to try to beat the FBI at their own game. Meanwhile, in New York, Blanche Knopf shocks Judith with an apology for her wretched behavior. I need to get this off my chest or it will kill me. I've been too hard on you. Not to sound maudlin... I need to say this so I
2: know it has been said. Follow your heart.
0: Judith indeed follows her heart, right to a lunch with future cookbook author Mother Joffrey, played by Mira Rohit Kambani. Stay tuned for the real Mother's take on this moment. Back in Boston, Alice's boyfriend Isaac attempts a classy proposal, but winds up asking her to marry him as they watch an episode of The Twilight Zone on Alice's couch.
1: I could be a lawyer anywhere. There's only one Julia, so this is where you need to be.
3: You thought we'd need oysters? (laughs) Yes!
0: (laughs) There's more good news. The French chef gets nominated for an Emmy. Simca, however, is not impressed.
3: What is an Emmy?
0: It's an award. Who won that award before? Other chefs? Oh, no. It's
1: an award for television. Oh, it's a stupid award.
0: Julia and her crew thwart the FBI with some quick thinking. And later celebrate both their deception and their Emmy nod. Paul leaves Frank with a bit of wisdom.
3: Change. Frank, don't be afraid of it. It's the side you always want to be on.
0: What change will season three bring? There is still so much up in the air for Alice, Isaac, Avis, Marion, Judith, Russ, Albert, Hunter. And will Julia and Paul continue to be each other's rock? Our next two guests hold the answers. It's Julia showrunner Chris Kaiser and creator Daniel Goldfarb. Daniel, by the way, wrote the final episode. Let's chat with our first guests.
2: I felt squeamish all afternoon, but
0: I, hey, George, we worked as a team. Everybody played their part and pointed their finger accordingly. I was proud of our motley crew. Chris and Daniel, welcome to Dishing on Julia.
3: Sounds nice. Uh, to thank be you. Back. Yeah. Thank you. And together.
0: This is so exciting. What did we do to deserve the two of you in the same room at the same time?
3: It's really You're the only person ever to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) Not true.
0: Anyway, congratulations to the both of you on season two. How are you feeling? Daniel.
1: I'm really very proud of the season and the response has been so wonderful. It's really nice that we get to have this kind of six week period where every week a new episode comes out. It was fun to start with all three in France. It's been really exciting to see people get emotionally involved in in not just Julia, but in Alice and Elaine, and in Alice and Isaac, and in Stanley and Avis, so that's been really, really rewarding.
3: Yeah. It's also interesting because it, this year, it's such a long delay since we finished shooting, so... Right. Tell everybody
0: it, you shot in the did, summer
3: of 22. Right. And, and wrapped essentially a year ago, so we haven't seen each other. Very much in a year, and we haven't really seen the show in this form for months and months and months. So in some ways, it's exciting to come back to something that you don't remember quite in the same way. It's a little fresh. On the other hand, as I always say, it's it is like Thanksgiving dinner. It's like two days to prepare and twenty minutes to eat, and it seems like it's done already. And that's a little. Is it
0: a little little bittersweet when a season ends?
1: Yeah, I mean it'll be so nice when the whole thing is is up and people can binge it if they want to binge straight through. So much goes into a show, not just before you're shooting, even before you're in the writer's room, just as exactly as Chris is saying. And then just like that, it's over.
3: I don't know about you, but I really I like this way of releasing the show one a week, much more than yes people can binge it at this point and that's great or they will be able to, but you do put a lot of effort into each episode and when one comes out a week, people watch and then they think about it and they talk about it and it's nice when that happens as opposed to it all being done in a day. I agree. Uh, yeah, I'm not much of a binger, so I mm-hmm. like the
0: one at a time. Feel like you get to savor it. Mm-hmm. Since we have the two of you together on the pod for the first time, I'd love to know how you wound up collaborating on Julia. What brought you two together?
1: I know Chris because I worked for him. I worked on a show called Tyrant that he was showrunning, and I lived in his guest house, and we became friends, and he, he's just the best. And then years later, I was working on Mrs. Maisel, and I had a meeting at Three Arts to discuss a take on a show about Julia Child, and the meeting went really well. Kimberly Carver, the executive who was on last year, she asked me if there's someone who I'd love to pair with to do it and someone who had more showrunning experience. And I was like, well, what about Chris Kaiser? And she was like, do you think we could get Chris Kaiser? Like, it was a, a moment. And I said, I can try. And I went out with Chris and his wife, Susan, for dinner to this restaurant in Santa Monica. I told him about the meeting and he said, that sounds great. And that's sort of it, right? I mean, is there more to it than that's, that? That's the story. I mean, yeah.
3: I, I love Julia. I love working with Daniel, and so we made a we made a pact at dinner, to try it.
0: Let's talk about season two. The season of the show is all about change. Why did that appeal to you thematically?
3: Well, first of all, it's a complicated thing to do a show about Julia Child because. It's not as if her life is full of incident, really. I mean, she did some remarkable things. Obviously, she started, she made a television series. We talked about that in season one. But it's not as if her life is full of major drama and conflict. In some ways, she actually feels like she's the opposite of that. And we try to say, look, underneath what seemed like a somewhat magical life, there must have been moments. But it's all under the surface. And so this is an interior drama and comedy in some ways. It's about how people change and adapt. So, it seemed to us, almost immediately, that the fact that Julia had become famous, that the show was different from the way it was, immediately meant that it was impossible for her to behave in the same way in the world. And her relationship to everybody on the show and at the station necessarily changed. So did the world itself all around her and wouldn't be interesting just to design this season around the idea that having come out of, now we'll be explicit about it, the Kennedy assassination and into that period in the 60s when Amer- the change in American society, really began to pick up pace, talk about Julia and all her contradictions and the way in which she was ahead of the world at some point, points, and at some point still a uh, you know, product of the time in which she was born, how she managed that. Talked about that with Paul in season one and how he managed the change in their marriage. So in every way, it just felt to us like a good, a good underlying theme to talk about everyone's life and how they both rose to occasions and sometimes stood in the way of the way the world was moving. Daniel can talk more specifically about it, but it was just, it was just a good framework for us.
1: No, I, I just want to underline what Chris said about Julia's contradictions, because what was fun about doing all the research into Julia is finding those contradictions, and finding them felt like very exciting opportunities for us to dramatize them. So whether it's Julia sometimes said, women shouldn't be chefs women were cooks. And then other times, like Jacques Papin said the other week, every time she went to a restaurant, she wanted to go to the back and see the women in the kitchen. So those are those contradictions. And it was fun to find ways of dramatizing that. Julia, in some of her letters, said things that were homophobic but James Beard was one of her closest and dearest friends. And the contradiction of that was something really interesting to us, and we wanted to underline it and dramatize it. So instead of the contradictions confusing us or making us feel like we had to make a ch- choice, which one is she? She was both. And as dramatists, it's very exciting when, when characters are in conflict with themselves and, again, are going through changes. So in terms of their values and what they believe in. and And not only just forward change, but sometimes taking a step back before they take two steps forward. And that was really exciting for us to be able to do with Julia. Yeah. And it really, it
3: took a whole season, right? I mean, the very first episode, Julia very firmly comes out on the side of change and being forward-looking in that case from the point of view about what, what it meant to cook French food and the changes that were going on in French cooking. But it takes her until the episode that Daniel wrote, the last episode of the season, for her really to come to terms with that means in every aspect of her life, most particularly as a role model for women.
0: Let's talk about the final episode. It's titled Lobster American. Why is Julia making lobster American of all the dishes she could have made why this?
1: So, two reasons. First of all, like just like last year when we ended the season with chocolate souffle, we wanted to end the season with something amazing and something fun to cook and something, a challenge for Christine, our food stylist.
0: Christine Tobin.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. And then also there, there was something, even though there's nothing American about lobster a American, the fact that it's called lobster a American and that idea of what it is to be a American is such a big part of the theme of the episode. So that felt like the perfect lobster dish to choose. We knew we wanted to do lobster, and we knew we wanted to work with live lobsters. But when we were going through all the Julia Lobster recipes, that felt like the perfect one thematically in terms of what the episode was about.
0: So in this episode, WGBH, the public television station, is dealing with an FBI raid. J. Edgar Hoover was running the FBI at that point and did terrorize a lot of folks. Were liberal broadcasters on his target list?
1: Yes, they were. I mean, whether there was a, a rate of GBH, we don't know. But we do know that liberal broadcasters were on his list. So we found that in the research. And all, all kinds of left-leaning individuals and organizations, the monkeys, Aretha Franklin, I mean, you na- Sesame Street, I mean, you name it.
3: It's an interesting story. I mean, we haven't talked about it a lot. It's a weird story to tell today because the FBI and public impressions of the FBI and the way people talk about the FBI is so different now. It's sort of flipped in some ways. But certainly in the 1960s, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were very wary of anti-war protesters, people who were involved in the civil rights movement. And so it triggered for us an interesting contrast to Julia going to the White House and presenting a piece of American propaganda, not necessarily bad way, but clearly a piece of propaganda.
0: Why in this episode is the FBI blackmailing Julia?
1: Well, we set up in episode four that they come to her and they ask her for help. And they even threaten to go public with what happened with her and Paul, which Julia does write about in my time in France, briefly, but she writes about it. And they feel like she's going to play ball. And she's not. You know, she's Emotionally invested in WGBH, we episode six is all about her sort of choosing to stay with WGBH, and they're sort of her her family, and she believes in what they're doing. So they're sort of surprised, and because of you know we play with the lore of Julia and Paul being in the OSS during the war, and were weren't they spies? So they feel like Julia's already on the inside and she can help them and she's not helping them. And then ultimately, as they threaten her and Paul in a more sort of pronounced way, they fight back. And, you know, and then it's this, this fun, it's sort of inspired by the movie to be or not to be, this little troupe sort of outsmarting something so much bigger than them. Yeah. That, that's sort of what we're yeah. going
3: for. People should watch
1: that movie. So it, it really is this like little theatrical troupe of eccentrics, and they're, you know, in To Be or Not To Be, they outsmart the Nazis, and right. and here they outsmart the right. FBI.
3: We take a lot of time on the very intricate weaving. It doesn't seem that way, probably, because it's a comedy and it's kind of breezy, but there are so many strands that go into all of this. So the question of finally coming to terms with who and Julia and Paul were during the war, the secret that we lay in in the very first episode, what happened when Paul went back to Washington when he was called back from France, the question of what does it mean to stand for or be opposed to change, and the way in which even though GBH really isn't a hotbed of insurgency, that even still there are forces in society that look to stop things from moving forward. And then requirement then obviously, both for Julian Paul and for Alice, and for a uh, Hunter to finally say, I'm taking a public stand in favor of change. I'm going to actively work toward moving this country forward. And what that means, not just there, but for women, people of color, all of that.
0: And you gave Paul the most beautiful line when he's talking mm-hmm. to Frank about mm-hmm. change.
1: Yes. Thank you. Paul is, you know, we have this whole set piece, the show within the show of Julia doing the episode of The French Chef while all of this is going on with, I don't need to give everything away, but Paul's on the outside and we wanted him because he never really has a moment with Frank. And the person who's most vulnerable in the season is Paul. So we wanted him to finally have a, a confrontational moment with his old ally.
3: It's not Paul's season, but I find in some ways Paul's story among the most moving because in the first season, he says, I'm okay to step back, become a modern husband, and allow my wife to step forward. But he still has to account for who he is, what his life meant, and all of that. And it's a question that gets asked almost immediately in the season by Simka's husband. What you have to show for yourself? It's not until the very end of the last, episode, well, the end of episode seven and into episode eight that Paul essentially says, this is who I am, and I stand by it, and I have- make no excuses. So it's a, that. It's
1: and that carries all the way through this season, even before, you know, in episode two, when Sam is sort of flirting with him and he chooses not to tell Julia about it. It feels like if this wasn't weighing over him, he would have told Julia about it. So we play that early and then obviously we have Frank show up in episode four and then Life magazine and Julia's nervous about things coming out in Life magazine and she's sort of overly paranoid and protective of Paul. And then the end of seven where she finally sort of lets him know the secret she's been carrying and then eight, you know, triumphantly, they they take it all on.
0: We've got a few cliffhangers at the end. Can you walk us through some of them?
1: Well, we have Julia making this declaration of let's make some noise. And it's exciting to see what GBH did do and what public television did do as we get further into the 60s. And we want to take all of that on. So that feels like something that could be really exciting if we're lucky enough to move forward with the show. And then, of course, there is what's going on with the cookbook, <laughs> what's going on with the house Paul is building on Simca's property. So there's all of those storylines. But really, I think what's really fun is how GBH is going to become a more progressive and a more modern place.
3: Right. What else? Oh, well, I mean, Judith and Blanche are obviously going to change because Blanche is really sick now and essentially says to Judith, I'm passing the torch to you and how that will work. There's a lot of passing torches here, except Hunter stays around and all that because we never say goodbye to Robert Joy. But Alice is starting off on a relationship, a real relationship with Isaac. And a modern one, too, because he's changing he's giving his up life, something. he's giving him up something for her. How those things will work, whether they will work or not, we don't know. Avis is alone again. So characters are uh, on the precipice or they're looking into the future uncertain, most of them confident that they know how to handle things. But I promise also if we come back in season three, life will throw them some complication. Would
0: love to know if you have a favorite scene from this episode.
1: I think I have two so I love Sarah doing the lobster American. And then when she's finally sitting at the table at the end of the episode and Frank walks in, I just think she's amazing in that in that moment. And I think she plays the comedy and the tension of it so beautifully. And then the other moment I love is actually an unspoken scene where the three of them, Julia and Paul and Avis, arrive at GBH with their sunglasses on in slow motion like gangsters. I think it's really fun.
3: Well, I'll certainly sign on to the ones that Daniel chose. What else do I love? I do love the moment, the most important moment between Alice and her mom, because I love that relationship and the way Adrian and Brittany play that, and that complex love that they have for each other. It's both a product of its time and beyond its time. And I love the scene where Blanche apologizes to Judith at the very beginning of, of the episode. And we're just really lucky to have those actors. And so in all of the cases... By the way, I shouldn't also say that, you know, the last line of the, of the season, which is something we knew way beforehand, is also one of my favorite moments. I know we we can give it away, but I'm not going to say it because it's not, yeah, yeah, it, it yeah, doesn't yeah. play as well as, as when you watch it. But we aimed toward it for months. So you knew that way in advance
1: yes yes that was something that that i pitched out in the room like in february or March, like early 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 and then so we were always writing towards that beat and then even when scott got the script and was like you know that scene is is one line (laughs) you know and it's the last scene of the episode how do you so he had to orchestrate a way to connect it to the previous scene which he did beautifully and uh and i think it's just the perfect button on the
3: it's weird to talk about without saying what the line is but it feels to me like it's our way of looking at the show which is some very serious stuff has happened but the last line is is a joke
0: if you're like what's the damn line you might just have to watch the show again (laughs) (laughs) can you give us some hints about season three what you're thinking, where you'll be taking us?
1: Well, there. so there were a lot of changes that happened in public television at WGBH and then specifically with The French Chef, and we want to dramatize all of those. We also want to dramatize Julian and Simca finishing the book and the launch of the book. So th- those are sort of like the big stories for Julia and Julia and Paul. And then, again, societally, everything that's going on in public television as public, you know, Mr. Rogers comes on the air, all these things sort of, change and and what people think the role of public television is starts really changing. And it feels like that would be an exciting thing to dramatize, both for the sort of new people that are embracing change and for the people that are going to be left behind. Those are the big stories to tell in terms of Julia and Paul and GBH. I mean, we we have ideas for everybody.
3: Not to give things away, maybe we can, but things don't work out for Judith the way Blanche suggests they're going to at Knopf. I mean, this is historical fact. They have a new editor-in-chief who comes in, and that relationship is going to play out eventually, eventually in the season.
0: And since I'm talking to Mother Joffrey right after you two, will she be a character in season three?
1: I mean, yes. The short answer would be yes, because we've we've set that's one of the cliffhangers that we set up. It would be really fun to continue Judith's story as sort of like the editor of the most definitive, iconic cookbooks of her time, starting obviously with Julia, but then continuing with Madre Joffrey. So that was very exciting when we found that in the research, and we would love to... Joyce Chen, there's all kinds of other writers Mm -hmm. that we want to... Yeah, right. Chris and I Whenever we're both on set together, we have, like, dinner every night together. And and once we've talked about our families and everything, <laughs> we just start talking. We just start daydreaming about where we can take the story. Or, you know, something happens on set where you're just really excited about an actor. And then you're like, you know what we can do for Britney? Like, we could do this. You know, so there's... You know, and then there's like Julia's full political awakening that happens, which is really exciting in terms of the biography. We really want to lean into all of that.
3: I mean, this season's a little bit, I mean, like in the 60s, it's 64, really just 64. It's a little bit of a stutter step in change, right? It's America begins the move toward... Becoming a different country, or so in some ways. By the time we get to the late '60s, mid-late '60s, when this, is, and we don't know how long. One thing we haven't talked about is how how long a period of time season three is going to take up. We might move quicker than we have before. It's possible. Yeah, we I was going to know. ask,
0: how far in time do you think you'll jump?
3: We don't know. We don't know yet. There are some of the things we love. Well, that's part of the question, is, is how do you cover more time and uh, how, how much does a single season take? But my guess is the pace of change picks up in America. The pace of change is who's going to pick up on the show. But you'll stay in the 60s, you think? Yeah. Okay. You heard it here, people. <laughs>
0: yeah. Since we've already talked about what you'd make Julia for dinner, I have a different question for each of you. Now that you know so much about Julia's life, if you could ask her one question, what would you ask her?
3: I just want to say I'm so happy to stop cooking for Julie. You didn't I mean, cook for her, never... though. You were you're
0: taking out for Chinese
3: food. Uh, I know. I know. Because <laughs> I'm just – I got tired.
1: <laughs> what would I ask her? That's such a good qu- – it's a hard question. Chris, can you answer it and then I'll think well, of it? Well, you questions? know, I
3: was thinking about this. It is a, it is a hard question. I guess this is, is – I think broadly I would say what did we intuit correctly and what did we get wrong? Like what did, what did we miss
1: in you? Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I, I I love the idea of her watching the show. Yeah. I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask that also. <laughs>
3: we, could, we could just ask it. We could just ask. The chances of her yeah, showing yeah, yeah. up are pretty low. Yeah. So if we do, we should probably just do it together.
0: Thank you both so much. I'm really sad to end this interview, and I'm so sad the season's over. As always, love working with you and all the people you brought together to make this beautiful show. Oh, thanks oh, for, thank you so yeah, much. Thanks
3: for being our partner in this. So we really appreciate it. We will keep all of our fingers crossed that we get to do it again.
0: Our next guest is Mother Joffrey, award-winning actor and best-selling cookbook author. Mother talks about her editor, Judith Jones, how her first cookbook came to be, and her remembrances of Julia Child, plus lots more. Indian cuisine is still like the ocean to me. There's so
2: much to explore below the surface. It is a cuisine unfamiliar to most Americans, but one that is as rich and complicated and flavorful as... Anything out of France. Exactly. I want you to write a cookbook for
0: us. Oh well, Mother, so good to see you. Thank you. It's a big anniversary year for you. Your first cookbook, An Invitation to Indian Cooking, was reissued this year for its 50th anniversary by Knopf. I would love to go back to the book's origin story. At the time you were offered a cookbook deal, you were an award-winning actor. That's right. How did a cookbook come to be? I have no idea.
2: It's all very strange. What happened was that I was an actress. I am an actress, and I had just done this film. And as publicity for the film, our producer, Ismail Merchant, who was quite a character and could sell anything. He had the knack of selling. He could sell his grandmother. He could sell his little finger if he wanted to. He just knew how to do it. So he must have approached the, the New York Times, Craig Claiborne, who was the food writer, for the New York Times in those years, it was the 60s. And he convinced Craig Claiborne that I was a wonderful cook. And of course, I was an actress in his film, Shakespeare Walla. and he was trying to promote Shakespeare Walla, but he sold me to Craig Claiborne as this actress who is a wonderful cook. I cook for Craig and he did a whole page piece on me. And that led to people asking me to write about food and do things about food. Start writing. I had not thought of writing at all, though I had studied English in college. My subject in my college was English literature. So, I mean, I wrote. I had been writing, but not for publication or anything like that. I wrote this piece for the holiday magazine, which was a piece on what did I cook as a child or something like that. People got so interested. That and the Craig Claiborne piece. And I thought, well, here's somebody who cooks. And people asked me to write all kinds of pieces on food, on cooking. And one freelance editor actually asked me to write a cookbook. So he said, how long will it take? I said, I don't know, a few months. (laughs) I had no idea. And I kept writing for five years. And finally, the book was finished. And then who was I going to sell it to? He suggested somebody. And they bought it, sort of, not for much money. But then that particular publishing house, which I will not name, split into two, and then both sides disappeared. So my book was now nowhere again. I didn't know what to do. And this freelance editor sort of vanished. I had a very good friend who was a writer for The New Yorker, an Indian writer called Ved Mehta. And Ved knew everybody in the publishing world. And he said, why don't you send it to my friend at Pantheon? And let's see what he says. This friend looked at whatever I wrote or didn't look at it. I don't know. But he said, why don't you send it to Judith Jones, who she had just done Julia's book. He said, she's a fantastic cookbook editor. And why don't you send it to her? He sent it to her overnight. And Judith looked at it. And the next morning, she called me and she said, we want this book. And it was that fast. What was Judith like as an editor? Absolutely wonderful. She used a green pen or a green pencil. That was her. I still have her little notes scribbled on my scripts. It was always minimum editing. It's the copy editor who did more editing, but Judith was always minimal editing, at least for me, in my books. It was what I call airy, minimal editing. For me, that was absolutely wonderful. It meant that most of it she liked, and most of it she agreed with. Sometimes you ask me to add a little more about a particular incident or add something else. But I know that where she really helped me was to teach me how to write menus so people would know how to put things together. And always to say, serve this with that, which I have learned to do now in every book that I write, whether Judith edited it or not, I write that always, serve this with this. Because I I think it's important for people who don't know your cuisine to know what you can serve it with.
0: Mother, can we go back to when you first discovered Julia Child? Was it when her first book came out?
2: I started with the shows. The first show, I saw and bought the book immediately. And then I bought her second book. And I I think I have every book that Julia... There are all kinds of books that she wrote. And some have very lovely recipes in them, but they're not very famous books. They're little books of different kinds where she wrote menus and not meats, vegetables, not like that, but she wrote menus and things like that. And there are books like that that are lost now. I don't know where they are, but I have them all. And some of them have absolutely wonderful recipes. I remember one in which there was chicken and she cooked it to a degree and then she put mustard and breadcrumbs on it. She broiled it and then she boiled it some more, baked, baked it. I can't remember right now. And it was absolutely scrumptious. And that was in one of the littler books. And I just loved that dish. So whatever she cooked, I enjoyed very much. What was it about her show that you liked? I give you good, honest French food. This is how you make it. Don't worry. I mean, things like the chicken falling on the floor. It didn't bother me because, you know, I have things slipping out of my hand and I also quickly pick it up. And (laughs) I'm not going to throw a whole chicken away easily. So things like that do happen. And we've had a a cat that took a chicken away. We didn't eat that one. (laughs) She jumped up and pulled the whole thing away, and then we had to eat something else. But, you know, these things happen to everybody. And how do we deal with it? And Julia was so easy with it. She was like a housewife. Even though she had gone to college, she was like me, the housewife. She had studied the art to cook, and I had not. But she had a way about her that says, come into my parlor, come into my kitchen, and I'll show you it's not hard. It it was that kind of attitude, which I loved.
0: Now, similar to Julia, countless people fell in love with you through your cooking shows. How did you get your first cooking show?
2: I'll start at the beginning and tell you how I started teaching even. So after I did my cookbook, Judith suggested that, you know, you should teach cooking classes so more people know about you. She was trying to promote the book in some way. So I said, fine, who do I teach? She said, you write a little blurb and advertise yourself and we'll send it out to a lot of people and see if they want to come to a cooking class. No interest, no interest. She wasn't giving up. So she said, James Beard is with me. I do his books. So I'll ask Jim to help. And you do the classes in Jim's house. How about that? So I said, okay. So so we advertised that in Jim Beard's house. And Jim was always there because he's always interested in whatever's going on. He wants the seed being cooked and he wanted to eat whatever was being cooked. He loved everything. He loved Indian food. He loves all food. I lived on 12th Street and Jim lived on 10th Street. We were both in the village. And I would go to his house and we would get two or three people, one girl from Gourmet one (laughs) who worked at Gourmet, one girl who worked in some other magazine. So there'd be two or three people And Jim would be at every class. So that's how I started. And then Jim moved. He bought another big brownstone on my block on 12th Street in the village. And he had cooking classes. And he would say to me, why don't you come? Come and help me teach my classes. So I was helping him teach his classes, which were very interesting. And I was learning a lot from his classes. And then he said, you advertise and we get people. We get people. So being in Jim's house and we started getting a trickle of people in and then we had a lot of people and I was doing regular classes and then when Jim died, I said I can teach four people at a time in my house, which is a tiny, tiny kitchen in my apartment. So I started teaching in my home and it would be three and a half hour classes and people would come and I would teach them and and then... I had written my first book. My first book was out and I was teaching cooking classes now. And somehow the BBC in England heard that I was teaching classes and they were looking for somebody to do a TV show. And they knew me as an actress a little bit and they knew I was teaching classes. And they asked me, they said, would you tape your classes and send them to us? I said, I can tape a class. I can put an audio tape in my class, it's three and a half hours long, but I can put an audio tape. So I put an audio tape on top of the fridge. (laughs) And as the classes were going on, it kept recording. And then I listened to it afterwards. and It was so awful. I mean, it was, you know, stop and start and so incoherent. So I said into the mic, it's a terrible tape and I'm not going to send it to you, but look, I can pretend So I did an absolutely pretend tape. Oh, here I am. Now we're making the puris. The oil, you have to wait for the oil to get hot. Drop a little piece of dough in. Is it bubbling? If it comes, rises to the front, it's ready. So I did a class like that. This is my actress coming out in me. And I did half an hour's worth
0: of a class and sent that audio tape to them. Did you take to it very naturally or were the first few shows a little rocky? How was it?
2: No, I I, I took to it naturally because I did cook at at home. So I was used to everything. I was not used to being on display all the time, but you learn. You learn, you make mistakes, and you say, oops, and you do it like Julia. Whatever happened, you just keep going. And I'd learned that from her. I also kept going. I remember once the rice got somehow packed in the sieve it was in, and I was putting it into something else, and first it didn't go at all. And then it went all over the place. uh, You just say, oops. And you say, I'll just collect that and put it back. So you keep going. Mm -hmm. So I think I was at ease. The actress part of me and learning from Julia both made it easier for me. And I could just relax and be myself and not worry about everything else. And you learn to do that. You are nervous, of course, as an actress. I used to be terribly nervous, but you learn to put that away.
0: And once you can put it away, you're fine. Were you surprised when Julia invited you to be on her show in Julia's kitchen?
2: I was surprised, but I was also very happy because I had not been to Boston. I'd seen this kitchen forever and ever, but I'd never been to her house in Boston and seen what it looked like. And It was such a lovely Like a family house, like my house is. I feel it's for the family. It's big, and you can go from room to room, and you feel at ease. And her house had the same kind of feeling.
0: Let's talk about the show, Julia. How has it been for you watching the show and seeing a lot of these folks who you actually know?
2: It's always hard, like, to see Judith, who is actually so specifically Judith. To see other people play her is is sort of startling every time I see it. But on the other hand, it is fiction and somebody has to play her. But it is hard when you know everyone and you know that's not what they look like. But somehow you try and put it off your mind. But when it's you, you can't. You can't. You get get too personally involved. And that's not me.
0: That's not me. Well, we get a tiny glimpse of you at the very end of this season, what would you like the producers to know about you if you become a recurring character?
2: Oh, just my spirit, I suppose, which is optimistic, outgoing, full of fun, I think. I like intellectual pursuits. And I talk with a certain accent. I, I hope they can get my accent, which is has changes. <laughs> it, it was different when I was doing my shows, my cookery shows, and it's different now. How is your accent different? I, I think going to Radha, I was speaking very proper, trying to speak very proper. I'm being taught to speak. Like instead of Indians would say, I will bake a cake. The English say bake.
0: It's to be bake, cake. And I would say bake, cake. Radha is the Royal yes. Academy of Dramatic Arts. Right. Were you surprised to learn that you pop up in the end of the series? I was very surprised, (laughs) yes. I didn't imagine I'd be there. Tell me something you've loved from the
2: series. Mostly Julia herself. I love Julia, and I think
0: she's been done very well. So, Mother, you've always got something you're working on. What are you up to right now? I'm working on a cookbook. Always working on a cookbook. (laughs) Always working on a cookbook. Tell everybody how many books you have. The most honest answer is I don't know.
2: What they've done with a lot of my books is make sometimes two books out of them. Sometimes they put two books together and made one book out of them. Sometimes they've taken a book and split it into 10 books. So by now, I have no idea. I just say roughly 30 when people ask me, because I don't know.
0: And you've been translated into so many languages.
2: That's right. They have, too. Swedish was the first. I was so surprised. The first translation was in, in Swedish, and there have been wonderful translations in German. It's gone certainly over to Europe, and it's in Hebrew, I know. It's done well in Hebrew. And it, it made everything kosher for, for that.
0: <laughs> How have you maintained your interest in food and your curiosity all these years? I don't have to maintain it. It's just there.
2: I love to eat. And the taste buds haven't died. Other things are dying off, (laughs) I suppose, but not my taste buds. They're very much there. And my curiosity, which is in my head, is very much there. My interest in not only the food of the world, but the history of the food in the world, how it went from one place to another place, and how it's all connected and interconnected. Uh, Chilies, potatoes, tomatoes. They went from one place to another place, and what effect they had on countries. I think potatoes overtook India. I mean, we have more potato dishes than anyone else I know in the world, including Peru. I mean, Peru has all kinds of potatoes. We basically have only a few kinds of potatoes, but a million dishes that we make out of them in every different part of India. So someone should record all this because it's valuable information. I know it's all in my head. I write about bits and pieces of it in different books, but somebody should be recording all this.
0: So your next cookbook will be a potato cookbook? No,
2: no, no, (laughs) it's not. It's not a potato cookbook.
0: But someone could make a cookbook out of all your potato recipes. (laughs) Yeah, literally. I mean, it would be so wonderful for people who like potatoes. (laughs) I Mother, our last question. Julia is coming over for dinner. What would you make? You've already told us she didn't like Indian food. Chinese food. You'd make her Chinese food.
2: Of course. I would not make her I've done it once. I would make her Chinese food this time. And definitely have some meat, no tofu. I don't know how she feels about tofu. I think she's a meat eater. So I would cook either some chicken or pork in, in some nice Chinese style, not spicy. I would just make it with soy sauce and rice wine and things like that. But it would have sauce to it, but it would not be spicy. And I would serve it with plain rice. What would you two talk about? Food. I'd talk about (laughs) the things she loves and why she loves them and what parts of France she was in and why she liked the food in that area, what she liked about that food in that area. She can talk to me about duck if she wants to. She can talk about anything she wants, but I will sort of keep her on food and ask her what all the things that she absolutely loves and why she loves them,
0: especially in France. Oh, I love that. Well, we love you, Mother. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you to Chris Kaiser, Daniel Goldfarb, and Mother Joffrey for joining us on Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox, our executive producers are Catherine Baker and Yasmin Nesbat. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu and our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review for Dishing on Julia on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to subscribe. When you leave your review, tell me what you've enjoyed the most about season two of Julia. A scene, a character, a dialogue, a dish. Let me know. I can't wait to hang out with all of you next season. In the meantime, leaving you with some wise words from Julia.
2: Let's be what they say we are and make some noise. Here <laughs> here. Here here.
0: Hacks is coming back and so is the official Hacks podcast.
3: With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky.
0: And I'm Lucia Annello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast we'll break down the new episodes.
1: We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack
0: season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.